This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. The scripture reading for today is Psalm 113. Who is like our God? Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. In Psalms in Tamil, in my language, it's called Sangeetam. Alleluia, Kartrudia Wulia Karare, Tudiungal. Kartrudia Namate, Tudiungal. Idumudal, Endendrekum, Kartrudia Namam, Stotarika Padodaga. Surian Udikum Tesai Tudengi, other Astamikum Tesai Matum, Kartrudia Namam, Tudika Padodaga. Kartar, Ella Jadigal Melum, Wernaber. Our Rudia Mahime, Banangulke Melanade. Unadangalil, Vasam Bandigir and Namudi Devana here, Kartarke, Samaman of Yar. Our Vanatilum, Bumilum, Ulabaigale, Parkumbadi Tamai, Taltu Hirar. Our Sirivane, Puldi Ilurn the Tukibadirar. Yeliavane, Kupailurn the Wear to Hirar. Avane, Prabukalodum, Tamad Janathin, Adibadigalodum, Udkara Pandigirar. Malayadi, Sandoshamana, Pilayachi, Vitile Kudir Kapanigar, Alleluia. Thank you so much. That was so beautiful. Love it. Hey everyone, my name's Chris. How are you this morning? Hopefully, you're doing well. Good to see you. Those of you who are joining us on the live stream, we're so glad you are with us this morning as well. Uh, this morning, uh, John mentioned it earlier, if you were in here at the beginning of the service, he thought it was Father's Day uh, and welcomed everybody and said, Happy Father's Day. I was down the hallway and I heard everyone start laughing. And I asked somebody in the hallway, I was like, why is everybody laughing so loud at the beginning of the service? And they said, because he said, Happy Father's Day. And I'm like, duh, it's Father's Day. I'm like, if they're laughing about that, I'm not going to preach in there because I'm a father and I don't want people to laugh. Like, I thought it was Father's Day too. Like, we were on the same page, just the wrong page. And the best part of it, my wife, who was just up here reading scripture, Adrian, she got up early this morning just to tell me, happy Father's Day. So, if, we, if I was smart, I could have worked this and have Father's Day today and next Sunday but I just outed myself. So anyway, there it is. Again, I'm Chris, uh, one of the pastors here at Park. I'm uh, just so glad to be worshiping with you today. We're going to be looking at Psalm 113 in just a minute. I had a whole section I was going to say to the fathers. Just saved you two minutes in the sermon. It's awesome. So 
We are continuing in our uh, Christ in the Psalm series. So again, be in Psalm 113. We find ourselves there today. Uh, what's really cool here, this happens to be the beginning of a new section of Psalms that spreads from 113 to 118. And those six Psalms are known as the Egyptian Hallel, which by the way, Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise. That's why you'll notice in verse one of Psalm 113, uh, the word praise is mentioned three times in one verse. Uh, this is known as a praise Psalm. Uh, they're, they're also known, these six are also known as the Passover Psalms, okay? And the reason for that is that they were traditionally sung before uh, and after the Passover meal by the people of Israel every year as they would remember God's deliverance uh, out of Egypt from slavery. Typically, it'd be the first two sung right before the meal. So 113, 114, and then after that, 115 to 118. So here's something just cool. Think about it. Just put yourself back in the, the biblical text. When the gospel accounts talk about Jesus having his last meal with his disciples, if you remember, it says they sang a hymn and then went out into the night. So they would have been singing, they would have started that meal with Psalm 113 and ended that meal with Psalm 118. So it's just cool. So this, this all of scripture is sacred, but it feels like sacred territory that we are reading in here in the next few weeks. So. The key to interpreting this passage is found in verse 5. So the key to interpreting Psalm 113 is found in verse 5. So look at verse 5 with me, if you would. Everything else in Psalm 113 supports this opening kind of rhetorical question found in verse 5. Notice what it says. It says, who is like the Lord our God? And because it's rhetorical, the anticipated response is no one. So who is like the Lord our God? No one. There is no one like our God. Now, that's a big statement, especially if you're not a believer, right? Maybe you are, have been invited by a friend or you're just like, well, let me go check out this Christianity thing. And you hear that kind of statement that there is no one like our God. That can sound really arrogant and probably a lot of reasons of why you don't want to become a Christian. So that's, that's a big statement. So somebody who makes that kind of presumptuous statement, that kind of dogmatic statement, better be able to back it up. It kind of reminds me, this is stupid, but um, the greatest Christmas movie of all time, Elf. Come on, drag it with me. All right. Remember that scene when Buddy the Elf is walking down the street in New York City and he sees the sign in the window? What does the sign say? World's best cup of coffee. And he runs in, congratulations, world. I actually sounded like him, that's pretty good. World's best cup of coffee, right? And everyone's looking at him like, what an idiot. What's wrong with the guy, right? It wasn't meant to be taken literally for sure, but man, the psalmist is going to have to back this up. The, the psalmist is going to have to do something to defend that kind of a dogmatic statement, especially since they're talking about God and you don't play around with God. So how's he do it? Well, what he's going to show us in these nine verses is that, first of all, 
Here's why there is no one like uh, the Lord our God. Nothing is too big for God. Nothing is too big for God. And at the exact same time that nothing is too big for God, at the same time, no one is too small for God. Nothing's too big for God. No one is too small for God. And that's what makes God completely different from anyone or anything else in all creation. So first, nothing is too big for God. Where do we see that? We see it in three verses. Look at verse 2. What we see here is that God is sovereign over all of history. God is sovereign over all of history. Look at verse 2. It says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Look at this. From this time forth and forevermore. All human history, blessed be the name of the Lord. The psalmist is saying, because he's so great, because he is God, his name will be praised forever. It's been praised from the very beginning of time and will be to the end of time. He has been and will continue to be praised for all eternity. So, so who else can fit that description? Nobody, right? Uh, it, it was the French philosopher and playwright who, uh, Voltaire, who lived from 1694 to 1778, famously declared that Christianity would be extinct within 100 years uh, of his death. All right, so by 1878, he predicted that Christianity would be extinct. Did that happen, right? No. Uh, And just kind of a little twist of fate, or irony, or sovereignty. 100 years after his death, his estate had become a Bible society headquarters in Europe. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Why? Because God, not Voltaire, is sovereign over history. And also, I think God has a sense of humor. So he's like, oh, really? Okay. (laughs) Right? That's one reason why Nothing is too big for God. He's sovereign over all history. Another reason, God is sovereign over all places. All places. Doesn't matter where you are on the earth, he's sovereign over it. Look at verse 3. From the rising of the sun in the east to its setting in the west. That's right, right? Rises east. Yes, okay, I want to make sure. From the rising of the sun to the setting, it is, or the name of the Lord is to be praised All of the earth is covered by his sovereignty. That's what the theologian Abraham Kuyper was getting at when he famously said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence. A lot of words. Over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Isn't that awesome? What is it? I wish I would have said that first. That is so good, so good. So how can the psalmist imply that there is no one like our God? Well, because he is sovereign over all of history. He is sovereign over all places. And then lastly, he is sovereign over all power and authority. 
over all power and authority. Look at that in verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations. He is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. All nations, all authorities, all powers. He is sovereign above. Now, think about the world today. The places where the gospel is spreading the most, where the church is exploding with growth. Think about where those places are in the world. Just to let you know, it's not Denver. I know that's shocking. It's places like the Middle East. It's places like Asia. Sections of Africa where there is intense persecution. Where it's illegal to be a Christian, it's illegal to attend church. How can that be? Because God is sovereign over all power and authority and will be praised and worshiped no matter how severe the opposition. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen? Amen. Even in Denver. The ancient historian Tertullian, uh, in explaining the early spread of Christianity in the face of really, really intense persecution, explained it this way, it's the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church. The more we kill these Christians, the more the gospel spreads, the larger the church gets. Meaning that the more the rulers and authorities of the world tried to stop the worship of God by killing the people of God, the more God proves himself to be sovereign over all power and authority that rises up against him. That's a historical fact. So the the psalmist can rightly ask the question, that rhetorical question, and answer it rightly. Who is like our God, right? Because nothing is too big for him. That there is no one in all of human history that is like this God, the God of Scripture, the one true God. But the writer can also rightly say that, that there's no one like this God, because no one is too small for God. What? Nothing is too big for God, and no one, doesn't matter who you are, is too small for God. We see that explained in verses 5 through 9. Let's read those again just to refresh ourselves. Verses 5 through 9. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Now, I'm going to stop just for a second. A better translation of that would probably be who stooped down, all right? Um, other translations do that. The Hebrew seems to imply the imagery is not God who's above all things, kind of staying back far away from all things and kind of surveying and looking down, but keeping his distance, not getting his hands dirty. That's not the imagery of the Hebrew there. The imagery is one of the, the creator of all the universe who spoke all things into existence, who holds everything together by his sheer power kneeling down, like from afar, kneeling down to, to get his hands dirty in the affairs of his creation. He loves his creation. So he's not standing far off, though he could and has every right to. That's just not the character and nature of God. 
God loves his creation. Keep reading. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. So what we see about God in this psalm is that he is simultaneously transcendent. He's huge. He's big. He's simultaneously transcendent and imminent. Transcendent and imminent at the same time. Big, huge, massive, all-powerful, who is also lovingly, intimately, closely involved in our lives, in his creation. That's why there is no God like him. He's transcendent, verse 4, because he's above all the nations, right? He's transcendent because, verse 5, he's seated on high. Uh, He's transcendent because, verse 6, he is still above but stoops down. He's massive, completely other than his creation, high above, sovereign, and in control of all things. And at the same time, he's imminent. He's here. He's with us. He's among us. He's next to you. He's beside you. He's around you. Why? Because he stoops down. He stoops down. He comes to us. Specifically to the poor and needy in verses 7 and 8. And meets the barren woman, verse 9, in her distress and loves and blesses her. So no one is like our God because nothing is too big for him. And no one No one is too small for him. See, in the ancient world, it didn't get any smaller than being poor and needy. That was as small as it gets. And being barren. Kings, emperors, governors, magistrates, people in authority would overlook the poor and the needy all the time. Would overlook the barren all the time. But the God of the universe, we're told in John 1.14, became flesh and dwelt among us. He humbled himself, Philippians 2, and took on the form of a servant to come and serve us and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Who is like this God? In verse 7, it says, he raises the poor from the dust, from the dust, which either implies they're homeless or they live in a simple mud hut, which would be typical of the poor people of the day. And it goes on to say, he lifts the needy from the ash heap, which implies definitely that these are the poorest of the poor. How do we know that? Because the ash heap is a reference to the dump outside of the city where people would take the trash and burn it. And these poor and needy would actually live in the ashes, in the dump, and scavenge for food and other supplies just to survive, because they, they had no other place to live. Unless we think, well, that's the ancient world. This happens every single day in this world. 
One, many of us drove by people experiencing homelessness right now on the way to this building in the dust, right? Um, Other places in the world, when I was a pastor in Southern California, we would take mission trips often to Mexico and go right over the border into Tijuana. If you've ever been there, you know there's this big dump right in the middle of the city where people literally live in the dump. I've seen houses made out of trash. That will change your life. That'll change your life. So it's, it's not just back then in the ancient days, God stooped down to care for the poor and to lift them up out of the dust and the ash heap. God loves them today. The need is still there today. And he comes to the barren woman in verse 9. It says, and meets her in her barrenness and doesn't leave her as she is. Look at verse 9. What does he do? He blesses her. He gives her joy and security. You see some examples of this in the Bible like Sarah in Genesis 21, Rebecca, Genesis 25, Rachel, Genesis 30. God does these kind of things. All of those women were barren, but because of God's purposes in the world, eventually Jesus would be born through that family line. He opened their wombs and blessed them in that way. You need to know there was no one more insecure than a barren woman in the ancient world. No one. That's no slam on them. That's just the reality. They were stigmatized, marginalized in society because in that world, children were viewed as God's blessing on a woman, right? And children are a blessing sometimes, but... um, Just kidding. I have three. Love them sometimes. No. Anyway, I'm going to get in trouble. I better be quiet. Um, But it was viewed as if you have kids, that means God's blessing you. Like you must be really living a God-honoring life if you have children. The more blessed you were, uh, the more kids you had, the more blessed you were, and probably the more righteous you were believed to be. And if you didn't have children, what did that say about you in the ancient world? Children also meant, in a real practical way, you'd have someone to care for you when you get too old to take care of yourself. But if you didn't have children, who would care for you when you are too old? This was the dilemma for women who were barren. Um, The Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann, speaking about barrenness in the Old Testament, he said this, barrenness in any Hebrew text is the effective metaphor for hopelessness. So whether it was talking about literally women who, or men who are barren, right? It's a metaphor as well. It's a metaphor for hopelessness. Now, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna read more of that quote in a minute, but I, I need to stop here. I have to imagine that in a room with this many people, there's someone who's longing to have kids But up to this point, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, that dream and desire hasn't been fulfilled. And right now, God brought you here because you're feeling hopeless. You're confused. Maybe you're even angry with God. I get it. Will you just stop for a minute and just let this psalm 
which is it's intended to do, is bring you some hope. God has not left you alone. He has stooped down. He is right with you. He is empathizing with you right now. He's feeling literally your pain right now. He's come down to love you and your pain and your hurt. And by the way, the cross is the ultimate proof of that, that God would go to the cross for us. So don't lose sight of who God truly is in the midst of your pain. There is always hope. Don't lose sight of who God truly is, right? Now, keep going with that quote from Brueggemann. I'll read the first part again. Bareness in any Hebrew text is the effective metaphor for hopelessness. Barrenness meant there was not only no foreseeable future for self. In other words, you really had no hope for yourself, for a family, and people without children, but also no human power to invent a future. Think of that. Real nice way of saying, like, you can't do anything about the future. Like, it's out of your control. No human power to invent a future. Simply put, it meant hopelessness. That's what it meant. Unless God intervened and performed a miracle... And we're told in the Gospels in the New Testament that that's exactly what God did to fix all of this. He performed a miracle. What was the miracle? Well, a virgin conceived and gave birth to a son. God in the flesh. As John said in his gospel, again, the word, that's Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive in Christ, with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And listen, this sounds a lot like Psalm 113, and raised us up with him. Poor, desperate, hopeless, dead spiritually. He raised us up with him. Seated us with him. Seated us with him in heavenly places. Notice that's past tense. And it doesn't say you did anything to earn it. It was all by grace. You've been saved. Seated us in heavenly places with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Sounds a lot like Philippians, or I'm sorry, uh, Psalm 113. Remember verse 7? He raises the poor from the dust, right? And lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. And then Jesus come along, comes along and is the ultimate fulfillment of that. And it's not some earthly reign and rule necessarily right now. It's we are spiritually seated with him. It's as if we're already there because God's already in the future. So he can talk about it like it's already done. You're there. You're with him, ruling and reigning. He lifted you up out of the dust. He made you alive by grace. He came to lift up the spiritually poor and needy, which is everyone. You may not be 
poor materially, but apart from God's grace, we're all poor spiritually. All of us. The scripture is clear that all of us are spiritually poor and needy and desperately in need of his grace and mercy. And through faith in Jesus, guess what happens? We're lifted up. We're seated with him in heavenly places in Christ. He came to meet the hopeless, the lonely, the marginalized, the forgotten, and give us a hope and a future in Jesus to give us an eternal family for those who are barren. And we're all spiritually barren apart from Christ, but in Christ we can bear fruit that is eternal. That's why Jesus said, John 15, five, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit, spiritual fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from him stooping down and coming to us, There was nothing of significant eternal value we could do apart from him. So who is like our God? No one. No one. There is no one, nothing that is simultaneously bigger than anything out there, and yet nothing's too big for him. And no one, no one, no one, doesn't matter what the culture says, what the world says, no one is too small for him. No one is forgotten by him. Now, here's what happens when we really believe this about God. You see, this sounds good, but when we start really believing this and this starts getting down into the depths of our heart, into our soul, Here's what happens. We'll want to live in such a way that reflects his character and nature in the world. We'll want to love like he loves. We'll want to. We'll want to serve like he serves us. We'll want to see and help the kind of people that the world ignores and overlooks. In other words, because God loves and serves the poor, the needy, the hopeless, the overlooked, the forgotten, we'll want to love and serve them as well. Even if you might fall into that category, you'll still have that desire. And we don't do it to earn God's love and acceptance. We do it because we already have it in Christ. We are already seated with him in heavenly places. Amen? Amen. Now, here's the deal. If that's true for you and you put your faith in trusting Jesus Christ, you believe that he is the only way to the Father, What does it mean when you don't want to live like this? It it means you're human. That's what it means, right? Like no one is perfect. That's why we still need grace. That's why we still need mercy. So one of the reasons Jesus said, hey, it's going to be way better for you for me to ascend back to the Father because when I ascend to the Father, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send the comforter to you. And he's going to indwell you, and he's going to empower you, and he's going to teach you, and he's going to lead you, the Holy Spirit. He's going to guide you into righteousness. So here, what do we do when we don't feel this way and don't want this, but we do believe? Man, here's a prayer that God would love to answer. God, I don't love people the way you love people. And we can all be, like, no matter where you are on the spectrum, you're not God. All right? So, like, all of us can pray this prayer. 
We're just, some of us are a little further, some of us, whatever. But we're not always all going to feel like loving people the way God loves people. So man, can you imagine what it must be like for God to hear an entire congregation pray to him and ask him by the power of his spirit to make you more like that in the world? He loves to answer those kinds of prayers. So pray, ask him, give me that kind of heart by the power of the spirit in me. Help me become in reality who I already am in identity. So here's a question for us as we wrap up. Who are the kind of people that are easy for you to overlook? Who are the kind of people that are easy for me to overlook? Are they the kind of people that are different than you politically? You're like, yeah, forget them. They may be in need, but I don't ever want to be around them. Maybe different personality types. I'm an eight in the Enneagram. None of you like me now, right? I found out everybody hates the eights. That's all right. I love you, though. I'll pray for you. Uh, but maybe it is a personality. I'm going to be honest with you. This is the one that's the hardest for me. I'm just being straight up. I'm not going to tell you what kind of personalities are most annoying to me, but I'm telling you there are some. And man, unfortunately, it's way too easy for me just to walk away from them and not invest and not be around them because they just annoy me. That's the eight in me coming out, I guess. But we all have them. We all have them. Maybe it's people who are experiencing homelessness. Maybe it's just so easy to ignore because the problem is so big. It's so huge that I think what it does for us is it cripples us. It paralyzes us, doesn't it? When in the reality, there's actually some things we could do and we just overlook. And this one, nobody wants to admit. Maybe it's people who are of a different ethnicity than you. Maybe it's people who, the only thing that makes them different in any way from you is they have a different color of skin than you do. Maybe for us, it's way too easy to overlook people who are different than us in that way. I don't know. So for you, who is it? What kind of person? Take that to the Lord. Confess it. In a minute, you're going to have time for confession. Confess that to the Lord and ask for, again, by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, that your reality would more reflect your true identity in Christ. So... Again, the question, who is like the Lord our God? No one. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for your word. I hope that there were just a lot of people that have been encouraged by your word today. This, the psalm of praise that was sung before the Passover meal where your people would remember your deliverance out of slavery from Egypt. And God, today as modern followers of Jesus, we've been delivered as well. We've been delivered from the slavery to Satan, sin, and death. 
We've been set free to walk in the light and live in freedom of loving you, living for you and loving others. Making much of your name in the world. So God, by your grace, encourage who needs to be encouraged today and rebuke those who need to be rebuked. I know I do. I'm convicted by what I've said today. There are areas where I'm not living up to my calling. And I ask that you would, one, forgive that, forgive me for that. And Spirit, would you empower me? I'm sure there are brothers and sisters in the room that could pray the same thing. So God, I ask that you would move, transform us. We do not want to be the same people we were when we walked in. God, that would be a shame. Change us. Make us more like your son. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Heart Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Heart Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at partchurch.org. Peace and love.